Hello, I've just come off the phone speaking to Tom Bailey, um, who is uh, probably best known for his work um, as the founder and singer of the Thompson Twins, um, who were arguably a huge band in the 80s. Um, they had a string of top five hits, um, which still sound fantastic today. In fact, I do think that um, Hold Me Now, which we speak about in the podcast, is one of the best songs, not just from the 80s, but I think one of the best pop songs ever written. Tom has also been making some great dub records um, under the guise International Observer, uh, which he's been um, involved with for for many years now, putting these um, great dub records out. So he's really a fascinating guy to speak to, and I loved hearing his stories about uh, sharing a stage with Noel Rogers and Madonna at Live 8, meeting David Bowie, playing Top of the Pops and kind of memorable tours and gigs that they've played. Because we touch upon the image of the Thompson Twins, which is actually what struck me first, um, because my sister had a poster of them on her bedroom wall. So the first thing I remember is this striking image of the trio uh, with Tom's mad 80s hair, and they just looked incredible. And I think from seeing that image, I went on to listen to the music and then have become a fan ever since. So it was um, really good to speak to him. So here it is, my interview with the wonderful and very talented Tom Bailey. Whereabouts are you? So I'm based in Warrington. So, you know, sort of between Manchester and Liverpool. Um, I really wanted to go and see you with the Human League and I couldn't make that night. I was so gutted because I I was watching videos of you on YouTube and it just looked magical. Yes, it was was a strange but really enjoyable tour because there were these unusual restrictions. I mean... For us, it wasn't a social event in, in in the normal sense. You know, there were no, yeah, no friends, no family, no spouses. Like backstage was a desert. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> and we had to be really, really careful. Okay. Um, yeah. But yet, yeah, the, the, ironically, when we got on stage, the audience seemed to be determined to have a big party. <laughs> so, yeah, um, which was which made it very fun. And we only just finished that tour, I think. Um, in the nick of time, because it kind of closed down as we as as we did the last date. I think I felt the door on big concerts slamming behind us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and anyway, Human League were great. We had a great time doing it, and um, we were with Altered Images as well. So, oh yes, but none of the bands were able to hang out together like normally. You you know, yeah, you yeah. spend time, you hang out. There's all sorts of interesting. Uh, uh, interactions, but we were just sitting alone in our dressing rooms, you know, because of this COVID thing. <laughs> no, I was, I was wondering actually just then. I mean, you've got so many good tracks on your belt that how you how you go about choosing a setlist for a support slot? Because I take it if you've got another band on as well, you've got a short space of what say is it thirty minutes or maybe maybe more? Yeah, sometime? and when it's forty or forty-five or whatever, how you but, choose? Um, yeah. It's difficult, actually, but I mean, one thing I'll say is that uh, I've definitely come to appreciate over the years the value of a short set. Like, there's something really interesting happens when you're forced to choose, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I've played I've played a couple of festival slots where it's like literally thirty minutes, and so it really focuses your mind on what you want to do and how you're going to yeah. achieve it. And there's no messing around. You know, you, you, every second counts. Um, and if you have, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a few hits, then it means that it concentrates 
goes into a small space and it goes bang, bang, bang. So um, it's not the scary thing that I used, or the disappointing thing that I used to believe it was. I think a short set can be really good. And of course, you, the other thing is, especially if you're opening for someone else, you're not testing the... Um, the tolerance of, of in, in this case, the Human League's audience for us, you know, we yeah. give them short and uh, <laughs> and sweet and they enjoy it. Yeah. Whereas if we drone on for hours, then people start going, wandering to the bar, you know, like it's, it's, the, it's the reality of the live situation. I mean, I think when we play to our own fans, it's a different yeah. thing. They want to go deep into the back yeah, catalog and so on and so forth. But even on that tour, we found ourselves steering away from playing some of the some of our own hits and um, I did one track from uh, admittedly a successful album but it was not a single you know it wasn't a kind of hit, yeah. uh, what you'd think of as a as a hit uh, and also a cover version of you know, someone else's song so it seems to me that you've got to find uh, a creative balance and also yeah. a kind of like the performance equivalent of a narrative arc, you know, where it starts well, has an interesting middle bit and finishes magnificently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like, a, you know, once you've written the songs, that's the musical thing. But then when you're performing them, it's more a, a dramatic thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looked it looked magical. I mean, it, I, I mean, I suppose, and I bet it doesn't get any get old, you know, when a large audience singing your song back to you. That must, must be... I mean, I can't imagine what that's like. It must be a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's such an emotional thing. Sometimes I have to kind of, you know, gulp and hold back the, the tears because it's a, it's an outpouring of emotion that sometimes overwhelms me. Um, but it does happen regularly, you know, so I kind of get used yeah. to it. Um, and um, sometimes, um, sometimes it's difficult, you know. Sometimes uh, I end a show in a triumphant move, mood or sometimes in a really fragile mood you know if I feel like yeah. I've been hollowed <laughs> out by the the kind of uh, strange honesty of it and you know after all we're talking about synthetic pop music right <laughs> so it's not as if um, it's just not first and foremost a spiritual discourse if you know what I mean there's something there's something inherently facile and sugary about it you might say yeah. but it, but it seems to carry a certain truth i've always thought that 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 music should be motivated by ambitions of liberation basically and it's to make the world a better place for everyone and that's what drives me on and, and it kind of disappoints me when i see that not happening so yeah I mean, I'm a bit of an old statesman now, but it's that's still the thing that makes me want to do it. Yeah, and it, I mean, and people, I mean, when when did you start playing again? From you know, I know it's been a while now, but the whole lockdown thing. When did you start playing shows again? Uh, after the lockdown, you mean? Yeah, uh, yeah this, sorry, was, this was the first thing after the lockdown. Yeah, was I, it okay? I was I was stranded in New Zealand for over two years. Yeah, I couldn't right. travel, so um, everything was cancelled. And then, of course, before that, I'd only really come back into the whole pop music thing about five years before that. There was a 27-year gap. <laughs> only. Yeah. yeah, but but you've been working on other things in between, haven't you? You're, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, I know music, always, music, music. Yeah. Your own projects you've done and all these different solo stuff yeah. I know you've been involved yeah. in. So. 
Yeah, which is kind of which is crazy because I get you know I get seduced to diving deep into kind of weird things that no one else is interested in, in in my kind of pop music career. They go, what's yeah, he doing yeah. now? You know, he's joined some Indian band or he's doing kind of yeah. instrumental dub reggae. Or something. I know. <laughs> you know? And so, you've done so much stuff; it's impressive. All different well, types of music. Yeah, I mean, I guess you just accumulate it over the years. It's, it's all it is. Yeah. And what did you, um, how was it for you, the whole the whole lockdown thing? I mean, what did you do to keep yourself busy? Did you have enough? Well, I, was, I just on? worked away, you know. I, I wasn't inspired to make the lockdown album, I don't, you know. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> some people were, that's fine. But, I mean, I think maybe I've got an old school view that, that the time to make and release an album was, is when you're going to go out on a big tour yeah. around the world, you know. So... I look forward to maybe that opportunity to do another one. But the last time I um, made a, a, a pop album, which was actually my first solo album, was when I was touring around the world with um, Culture Club, actually, and other people. Yeah. And so we played to hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and that's great. That's a great time to say I've got a new record out, yeah. rather than just from isolation in New Zealand where I couldn't travel anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that's kind of my excuse. Um, but who knows? It, I was certainly making music during that time. Yeah. Uh, in all sorts of ways and enjoying it too. Have you got anything that's going to be coming out soon or is it still just working on pieces? Well, International Observer's always got things coming out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think we're about to put a, a fourth EP in the zoonotic series out um and i think international observer is now six or seven albums in or something so it's constant you know um we it just happens when it happens you know because that has to in a way that has to work around other less less forgiving obligations like touring with, with 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 um with me as tom bailey pop musician which yeah. um, has to take precedence. But yeah, that, that'll be coming out. We're, I'm coming back in May to do festivals. Yes, I've seen them. Very here exciting. in the UK. Yeah. So, which are great fun because that's the, the kind of 80s uh, usual suspects lineup, you know, and then it's good to see all those people have a good time and the audiences are, are fantastic. Yeah, I mean, why? Um, it looks very popular now, aren't they? The Rewind. And I think. Why not? People, there's a there's a need, a desire for them. People want to see, um, this, you know, these bands together on stage, and it must be yeah. nice for you to meet up with old, you know, yes. friends. Well, I think for a long time festivals were a kind of rock-oriented yes. specialism in a way. Even though there were there were lots of them, they always kind of tended to go that way. And because the eighties was more predominantly a pop era, yeah. I think the festival culture ignored the 80s and so what happened was they had to kind of set up their own thing and so rewind and let's rock are the examples of that and a few other important ones as well and of course if you if you neglect a demand like that then sure enough it's just waiting to to take off and and i think really impressed the lineup the lineup this year is uh, back with the human league isn't it i think you're playing well, they vary from festival to festival, but sure. certainly the Human League, the Human League are headlining a couple of those re-ones I saw, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Fantastic. And it's very, very strong, very strong. It's a I really think Holly Johnson's on one of them, and you know, lots oh, of other people too. He still sounds great, his voice. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a, I think that'd be a good ticket to get hold of, actually. Um, and we were mentioning about your um, solo records. I mean, I've listened to science fiction again. I mean, I know it's, it came out, was it 2018? can't remember now, on top of my head. It's a few it's years ago. A couple of years back, yeah. I mean, that's a great, I mean, it's still, I mean, it's a great album. I'm just thinking of some of the, the themes of it. I mean, is it all about sort of space and... Any the space race? Were you a fan of that growing up? Is was that a big influence? Um, it, it, it was a kind of uh, it, it was a present reality when I was growing up, wasn't it? That whole thing. But it's not really about that. Yeah. I think, and I, I'm as I said in the kind of promotional interviews at the time, I'm not yeah. I can't claim to be like a science fiction nut or anything. Yeah. I'm not really fully into that. But I do like the idea that science fiction is a way of stepping outside of our own reality in order to examine our own reality. So, I mean, science fiction seems to be about some wacky future event, yeah, but in fact, yeah. it's totally about us now. And, and so I thought, well, that's an interesting kind of way of writing songs, you know, you, uh, um, to step outside your immediate circumstances in order to focus upon them. Yeah. And so that's what I did, and, and I just thought, ooh, I stumbled into that and thought I found something that will actually drive me through a whole record, pretty much. So, and that's what I, I remember many times in the past. You know, there's a point in every album where you're looking for that that theme that ties the songs together, yeah, and makes them kind of brothers and sisters rather than kind of strangers that are staring at each other across the room. Yeah. <laughs> it, um, I mean, it sounds production-wise, it sounds amazing. I mean, where does it? Where was it recorded? Was it New Was it New Zealand or? It was recorded in New Zealand, France. Ooh. I have a place in France and a little bit in London, and then a lot on the road. You know, it's all done in the box, as it were, because yeah. I'm now a travelling recording artist. I don't really use studios very much. Okay. Um, so I've just learned how to get the best out of a laptop and a pair of headphones. You yeah. Know? And. Uh, Interestingly, I'll, um, I mean, I just do that every day, right? That's that's my thing, and I'm very, very happy to do it that way because it means that I can concentrate on what's important to me. Is the the way that you um, investigate and explore sounds and put them together? Yeah. To make something that's ultimately like deceptively simple and uh, foot tapping and and sing alongable, you know, like <laughs> it has to, no, no matter how kind of weird and, uh, and experimental you get, you have to somehow drag it back yeah. to to what works yeah. for and an you audience. Yeah, do it perfectly. Yeah, that must be such a, a skill to do that. Yeah, I can imagine part of you well, wants to be experimental, but then as you said, you've got to have that little pop sensibility or, or you know, a little bit more accessible. Well, experimental, experimentalism is the kind of, uh, um, it's the fertilization that makes the soil work to grow things, you know. If, if you don't experiment, you actually just, you're doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And the risk of that, of course, is that you can make unattractive mistakes because experimental means almost by definition you usually don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But if you use it as part of your process and then maybe... Um, 
pull it back into shape once you've discovered something really interesting, but it's too wild or crazy or something. You know? So mm. I guess that's the thing, you know, somehow as a, as a kind of mainstream pop musician, you have to yeah. be thinking in that way. But I mean, there are lots of examples. If you think of someone like David Bowie, who was at the heart of his work, an experimentalist. Amazing. So there was, there were periods in his career where there was a kind of some, you know, not such good albums because he was experimenting. But every now and again, he just made masterpieces, mind-blowing masterpieces. Right. And it's the experimentalism that took him to that point. Yeah. So um, it's, it's a strange conundrum, you know, how, how much you allow yourself to go crazy yeah. in order to be mainstream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you, did you ever meet um, Bowie, you know, from your time just... Had one very strange uh, uh, <laughs> meeting with him, if you call it a meeting, um, uh, where I was playing uh, a, sh a show with him in Edinburgh. Wow. In um, the rugby stadium, Murrayfields. Wow. And so we played our set too, you know, sold out stadium, 60,000 or something people. And um, then I thought, oh, I'm going to watch a bit of David Bowie from the side of the stage. So I kind of hung out there when I thought it was going to start his show. And what happened was he drove onto the stage. There was a ramp, drove in a limousine onto the stage, <laughs> stepped out, nodded, or at least I imagined he nodded to me, walked to the microphone and started singing. There was no conversation with any anybody. Wow. And... Mikey. Hold that thought because it's, it led me to, to, to discover something much later as well. But uh, and at the end of the show, I remember so clearly his last song was Fame. What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? We went into the delay line and be, before that had died out, he was back in the car and had driven off. Wow. And, and in other words, he didn't <laughs> engage with the, the local situation at all. And for me, that would be incredibly frightening, I always thought, you know, because I'm the kind of person who goes to a show three hours before we're due on stage. I'm looking through the curtain, you know, yeah, you want to, to be see involved. how the vibe, I want to feel the vibe building yeah, yeah. up and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I allow my nerves to kind of build up into a state of excitement. That's good. Yeah. Um, but that works I for thought, you. I don't like arriving at the last minute, or so I thought, until one day I was forced to do that. Yeah. And it was that lack of knowing that you were prepared and ready to do it, but not allowing yourself that kind of gradual ramping up was an incredibly exciting thing. So walking on a stage straight from one reality into another, I think is a kind of exciting challenge for you as a performer, if you're getting a little bit kind of blasé and tired of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what, that's my... Uh, big performance lesson from David Bowie is yeah. don't make it too easy and comfortable for yourself. Yeah, because I, I, I was thinking then about um, Live Aid, but obviously you were in the American side of it when you play. Is it yeah. that yeah. big stadium? Sorry, my mind, is it Dodgers? It was um, the JFK Stadium in That's Philadelphia. I remember, I remember watching footage of that a, a while ago and just the, I mean, the fact you're on stage with uh, was it Nile Rogers? I think was on stage with you. Was it Madonna as well? I remember something like. Yeah, it was an interesting. Uh, it was an interesting. I mean, we were recording in, we were recording in New York with Nile, and so we didn't have our regular touring situation together. You know, our, our band was over in the UK, and we were, 
working in a studio and we thought, if we have to stop, go over to England, rehearse everyone, then bring them on. So we said, why don't we just do a kind of pickup band in New York? And it just so happened that the David Letterman band, who played every night of the year because they're on the David Letterman show, that show was cancelled in order to make room for Live Aid. So for one night they weren't playing. It was, it was kind of... Uh, uh, and so they said, well, yeah, we'll be your band. So we got these amazing musicians, um, Anton Fig and Will Lee, and, and Felicia Collins, the guitarist, who went on to be our touring guitarist as well. So we kind of formed a good relationship there. Uh-huh. But obviously Niall was playing guitar. Steve Stevens, who played on the record uh, in Paris, he joined us, and Madonna came... We did a deal with Madonna to, to, to swap backing vocals, you know, so we, we sang on her set and she sang on ours. Amazing. I mean, can you still remember bits of the day or is it one of those, you know, so long ago that it's become a sort of magical memory of yours? Yes, it was an, an enormously uh, important day and... Um, you all look great as well. <laughs> If you if you ever felt like being starstruck, there was plenty of opportunity because you know you're kind of bumping into Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger and stuff in the corridors. Of- you got it all out of the way. I suppose now you, you I feel after then you don't you know everyone else you you met everybody you've seen everyone you can think of, and you know so right. But anyway, the, at the end of it all, and strangely enough, I met Joan Byers, who 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 was a childhood hero of mine. I never expected to to meet her, and and that was a great thrill. But at the end of the day, and, and an almost comatose David Crosby as well. Huh? <laughs> I sat next to him on a bus. I thought he died, but luckily he lived. Oh, that's we, amazing. No. Um, but um, <laughs> the reason I, I was on this bus, I was going back to the hotel to meet Niall. And can you guess what we did at the end of um, this um, superstar studded concert live aid? We went back to the hotel and played Scrabble. Because mind. Niall was trying to control his his drinking habits and yeah. he didn't want to party. That sounds fun. <laughs> he doesn't love Scrabble, though. I mean, come on. Uh, it's um, it's just a funny thing that happened. You know, it's good memory to have as well. It, it doesn't sound so glamorous, but um, but it's, that's the kind of thing that gets you through those big events. Yes. So um, so the actual the formation Thompson Twins does that go back? To, is it nineteen seventy seven? Correct me if I'm. Wrong, is that the kind oh of Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm used to some dates. I mean, yeah, something around that time yeah. when, when basically it was a bunch of school friends who had always played guitars together but never formed a band. But there was something about the kind of the, the post punk new wave explosion gave us, we felt, permission to form a band and have a go at least, you know. Um, Something had changed in the in the opportunity environment of the UK, where it, you didn't have to be kind of rich and famous to go on top of the pops. That these kind of have a go heroes were suddenly getting on there and doing it as well, and and also in the nightclubs and and and, and, and on all those places that make a music movement happen. Yeah. Um, you just saw a new, a kind of breath of fresh air, which which gave us that permission, and we, and we we kind of snuck in on the back of that. Really, it was yeah. it was our thing. 
And we were, uh, to begin with, uh, uh, traditional four guys, bass, drums, two guitars. Really? Right, yeah. Not the Thompson twins that we we became, yeah. What what you were listening to at the time, what was, I wouldn't say what influenced you, but what kind of things were you listening to that maybe fed into your first sort of, you know, I mean, everyone has faves around that time when you start a band. Yeah, I mean, the things we were listening to specifically at that time yeah. w- were typical of that time. Things like XTC yeah. and a lot of the punk bands and um, the Talking Heads was the big influence. You know, I, th- yeah. I, th- I thought, uh, you know, this to me was a new way of doing art rock yeah, well, that, that kind of de-glamorized it. That was kind of what interesting thing. They never tried to be at all glamorous. And so that that gave you permission to turn up in your in, in in your sneakers rather than <laughs> yeah, and in I your loved, high heels. I mean, I love I love punk music as well, but I think post punk when people started to get a bit experiment more and use different instruments and this whole synthesizers. Sure, and well, because punk, of, the, the importance of punk was an attitude, not 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 so much in the music. I mean, you you can't really listen to too many punk records and say this is great playing or what a fantastic musical idea or whatever. You know, it was it was somewhat one or two dimensional and a thrash of an idea, yeah. But the attitude that we can do this, you know, no one's going to stop us. I think yeah. was was crucial. And then, of course, you're right. The new wave, the post punk thing, oh, became an elaboration of that, a necessary elaboration. And yes, yeah, so, so punk was sort of this uh, more of a spirit, wasn't it? And that sort of influenced you to sort of go and do it yourself. But a necessary thing as well, because yeah. you know it got to the stage where, when you did particularly consume music via the media, it was the same old, same old, pre-existing superstars, you know, who were already rhinestone studded, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what? So, so the original lineup of Thompson Twins. It's not what went on. You know, you're the, the kind of what we think of as when you had that big success. It was a different right. lineup, wasn't it, when you first... Well, we did a couple of albums like that. And in the second album, which was a great record, actually, it was produced by Steve Lillywhite, but it was still essentially um, the four-piece with added anarchy in the form of percussion and um, yeah. blah, blah, blah. At that stage, I achieved my ambition to buy a synthesizer because I was a keyboard player at heart, but I was in this band singing and playing bass for some reason you know like i just ended up with the job i couldn't really do yeah St- i still am in that position actually <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i'm essentially someone who's interested in in the harmonic content of of, of 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 musical arrangements and yet somehow i have to go out there and sing and and, and play bass so it's a kind of weird thing but anyway i got a, a synthesizer I couldn't really figure out how to work a lot of it. Tom, Steve Lillywhite brought Tom Dolby in to work on that record. Mm-hmm. But I also discovered in the studio a very early drum machine. I'd never, I'd heard about these things but never seen one. And it was by a company called Movement. Mm. And so I, armed with the synthesizer, which was back at my house rather than in the studio because I didn't know how to, I was going home at night and trying to figure out how to work it. I wrote this song with a drum machine and uh, the synth, which was an Oberheim OBXA, you know, really sophisticated piece of kit, I have to say. Um, 
And we didn't have enough material for the album, so I said, don't worry, I've got this spare song, which is just, you know, a drum machine and synthesizer song. And it can go, it can fill side two of the album, you know, to, to, to kind of fill it out a little bit. And rather embarrassingly, it became the hit of the album, and it was called In the Name of Love. And it sort of became the writing on the wall for that band. I became fascinated in the idea mm. that... Um, working alone with a synthesizer and a drum machine, I didn't have to go through the normal procedure of somehow negotiating with a band of musicians to do yeah. the thing that made the record sound good. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's sad in a way because it led to the, to the breakup of that band, which was fantastic, but had its limits. You know? Okay. And I think also I was therefore lucky to stumble upon one of the kind of keys to our success, which is I stopped thinking of a band as a bunch of musicians, but rather as a designer of records. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, <I love> that. <laughs> <laughs> and so it didn't matter to me who played what. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I pretty much played everything, yeah. which was another thing that made me happy. You know, I could, I could play all the different instruments via a synthesizer. Um, Amazing. Um, but you did the thing that made the record sound good rather than giving a part to everyone because they were in the band. Yeah. Now, that means that it suddenly blows it wide open in terms of how, what you can sound like, but it also frees your thinking in terms of what a hit record might be. Yeah. Yeah. And. At that time also, I started working with Alex Sadkin, the producer who I think also had a similar design mentality. Um, it wasn't about who played which instrument, but rather what the overall sound yeah. was that he created. <clears throat> so looking at that from the kind of technical side, and then of course we had a responsibility from the songwriting side. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alana in particular started writing some great um, lyrics, which kind of drove us into that successful pocket. Yeah. So what was it? So was it nineteen eighty three? Is that when it maybe kind of went big? Or... You'll, you'll have to tell me that. I don't remember. <laughs> it's a long time but, um, ago. Yeah. But it was around then. I mean, was, around then. I think we released that in eighty three, the Quick Step and Sidekick album. So, so before... we must have been. I'm interested before then, been... before your big success, did you have many kind of like support slots and, or various other tours? You know, were you on the kind of, did you do all the kind of dodgy little venues and that to sort of make your way oh, up? Oh, you definitely did the dodgy venues. I mean, there, there were a few support slots that I remember, you know, playing with uh, Peter Gabriel, oh, wow. uh, for, for example. But um, mostly we were doing, we were kind of big on the student circuit, to be honest. So we were going around clubs, small theatres, student unions, you know, in a small van, bang, 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 you know, three, four nights a week um, for years before that, yeah. you know, so we, we were road hardened yeah, um, and occasionally going into to studios to make recordings. So that we, must have been healthy to have that, you know, rather than just have, make an album, instant studio success, to have that little 
climb that you did and experiences of all the different venues you've played and how how the industry works and well it's a valuable experience yeah. you know it's not necessarily always um, mm. easy but um, it's a valuable experience because you accumulate a certain uh, a confidence but also a knowledge about how to make things work yeah um, yeah, and cool. sometimes when you are in, st- I mean, even to this day, sometimes I have to kind of second guess. Yeah, but what will an audience respond? Yeah, yeah. How, how will they respond to this thing that I'm proposing now in the, in this kind of, uh, studio environment? So, yeah, you learn that. It's, uh, I, I guess that's being a seasoned performer or something old yeah. school. I don't know. Yeah. Um, when I work with my Indian band, they say we are creatures of the stage. Oh. <laughs> Because so... <laughs> um, it actually was on the radio that, but the other day, but obviously, I know you get spoke about this song a lot, but like Hold Me Now, I mean, it's one of those songs. I'd Not just one of the greatest songs of the 80s, it's just one of the best pop songs ever, in my opinion, anyway. And I wonder when, you write, when you're writing and recording a song like that, do you know at the time that this is a bit special? Or do you just think, oh, well, I'll put it out and see... Or did you think, oh no, this, you must have thought this has something because it's such a good song. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. It, it, there was a very strong feeling it's that it was, it, was, it was the best thing we'd ever written. That there was, it, for some reason, it carries an emotional burden that we'd never quite captured before. Mm. Um, because we were always a little bit too wacky, a little bit too frenetic to calm down enough to say, wow, there's this strong feeling that we have. Mm. And, and so we we finally captured it on that. And the weird thing was, we recorded it before doing the rest of the album. So I recorded it on my own. And it was a big production job in, in Rack Studios in, in North London. Um, and then when Alex Sadkin joined us for the rest of the album, <clears throat> he basically just worked on the vocals. And, and that's an interesting thing too. And in, in, in whenever I self-produce, the thing I find most difficult is my own singing, you know, because you have to be wearing two hats, you're the producer and the performer. Yeah. And, and, and so I find it really helpful to work with the producer at that point where I can, you know, give myself 100% to being the singer and yeah. let someone else make the decisions about what to keep and what to erase. So I still do that to this day. So that's what happened with, with Hold Me Now. So we... We made it, we finished it, we released it, UK and US side, and then we went off to the Bahamas to finish the rest of the album. Now, that was back in the day, there were no mobile phones or anything. You know, you had to book a phone call, right, <laughs> to America or, or London from the Bahamas. <laughs> and we're working away, and it's a good thing. We used to go to the Bahamas partly because we would get on with work. There's nothing wow. else to do apart from have a swim in the morning, you know. And, uh, and And so we would get on we'd have a good, achieve a good rate of, 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 of work. Then these phone calls started coming in saying, this, uh, this song is taking off, you know, it's, it's, it's radio stations in America are playing it and blah, 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 blah. And so it put this enormous pressure on us to make the rest of that into the Gap album, mm-hmm. kind of meet the standard of Hold Me Now. Um, it was the flagship that went out to announce the, the forthcoming album. And that was a big pressure, but it was a positive one, you know. Yeah. So we we knew that we had some other good songs on that record. We just tried to make it as good as possible. 
It's so Doctor Doctor and Sister of Mercy and You Take Me Up. They were all hits, you know. <laughs> and um, what we, such a good album. So I guess we were just on a bit of a roll. Yeah. And the um, obviously, it's, I know people bring this up before, but you looked. You also looked fantastic. You all had a really good image. Was uh, was that conscious thing to help you how you look, or was it just the eighties at the time when you just put on whatever or did you have a little well bit? it was it was definitely the the um a phenomenon of its time yeah you're right but the thing about the twins is when we when we reduced to the three piece after the success of in the name of love then we thought hard about how we were going to do this differently from before and one of the things we did was create a kind of division of labour. We we actually wrote down, this just seems so pretentious now, but we wrote down a kind of manifesto of the things we were going to do or else kind of thing. And one of them was that I would do all the music. Alana would take care of the visual image, including videos, which were a new thing, right? And Joe, who had a, th a theatre background, would take care of the live, the, the way that we designed the live show. Yeah. And... <clears throat> So we got on with life in that order. Yeah. Um, so yes, very much. It wasn't that uh, Alana said, you've got to wear this, that or the other, right. but she would come up with themes and mm. ideas and suggestions and so on and so forth. And it was always about not how you looked when you were walking down the street, but how you would look in a photograph or a video or on stage. Yeah. So, and that's actually, a significant way of looking at things. I mean, even now, I wear things on stage that I wouldn't dream of wearing walking down the street, right? <laughs> because you're performing. And it's an insult, in a way, to expect your audience to just see you as somehow normal. They want to see something special. They want to see something, something worth paying the money for and turning up, you know? So that's, that's my part of the bargain, as I try to be... Um, super normal in a way. Yeah. Um, step out of my own normality and be a little bit special if I can. So that's the clothing thing, I think, in a nutshell. And of course, Alana had some pretty wacky ideas and some of them became almost iconographic of that style era. You know, she used to wear these outrageous hats, for example, yeah. that, you know, it got to the stage where we'd see people... <laughs> Wearing them, tops and twins, shopping centres and so. <laughs> yeah, it's hugely so, influential. Yeah, that's so good. So the music and the look, everything is anyway very influential. And you meant touched upon videos. Did you enjoy making videos at that time? That process, because I know in the I think some of them definitely. It was an, it was a new and exciting way of connecting. Yeah, yeah, it was because I mean, pretty much prior to that, you were lucky if you got any visual representation that's right other than occasionally and maybe if you were lucky on, on a tv show or something but prior to that it was the your album cover a, right. or a poster <laughs> that's the only way people knew what you looked like um and so suddenly particularly in america which is a vast and disconnected place as you know uh, for all the kids to be watching the same videos and getting an idea of what was going on that had a, it, it went through American pop culture like a bolt of lightning, you know. And uh, I think we were also lucky because, in some sense, MTV, which was the big 
video television show there, um, channel I should say, they had all the usual rock suspects, you know, people uh, on stage with guitars doing outrageous things. Mm. But what they didn't have was something kind of wacky from the other side of the world, you know. So they said, let's find some kind of visually interesting UK bands because we hear that the, there are some out there kind of thing. And they found us and they put us into rotation and that changed our trajectory totally. We became, in many people's, in, you know, like millions of people's minds, we became an American band. That's interesting, actually. Um, I mean, you mentioned the poster because um, actually I think before I heard your music, my sister was a bit older than me. She had your poster on her wall. And I think that's what drew me to you first, actually. I thought they look really interesting. And then I heard the music and I was like, Sold. Well, it's interesting. There used to be an actually a, a kind of quasi-official theory of marketing with the rule of three, which is if someone saw a poster, read a review, and then heard the song on the radio, that was it. They couldn't resist buying the... Do, do you know what I mean? It, in other words, there's something about pop culture that has to come from several angles to be totally immersive. Um, it can't just be a kind of niche interest in order to go mainstream. And, and you see that now, um, I see it all the time actually in weird marketing, which is quite sickening in a way, because I'm not a big fan of a lot of marketing procedures. But um, yeah, that, that idea of hitting you from certain angles until you become a kind of helpless victim of the, <laughs> of the system. You know? And we did that. And I, I agree with you, I just, just the same thing. I heard about a band, then you see the poster and you go, oh, it's that one I heard about. And then who's this? Oh, it's that band. You yeah. know, suddenly it all connects in your mind and makes uh, something sign of significance. And that's how it works. Yeah, and then we became big fans after that. I remember seeing you on, like, Top of the Pops. I mean, what was it like playing a, a show like Top of the Pops? That must have been a, a bit of a thrill for you. Well, that's legendary, isn't it? And, I mean, the thing is, before you do that, you know, when you're a young, hopeful, unheard of band and people say, are you in a band? You say, yeah. Almost the <laughs> next question in every case is, have you ever been on top of the pops? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like that was the, yeah. that was the, uh, the litmus test of whether you were any good or not yeah. Yeah. For, for someone outside of the, the business. Uh, and so you get tired of saying no. And yeah. finally you can say yes. And we totally just inhabited that opportunity you know, we, we jumped to it you must have been were you on it a few times you must have been on it a number of times the amount of yeah maybe eight, eight or ten or something yeah. yeah you can remember um who you're on with at the first time you did it can you remember some of the other bands that you shared the studio with or was it i suppose it's like countless if you played it eight times um no i, I don't remember exactly no but yeah. um I mean, usually you're so focused and, you, you, you know, you're yeah. kind of guided from your dressing room to the stage and then back again because it's actually quite a small studio. Or it was a quite a small studio. So there wasn't room to hang around and look at other bands or anything. Yeah. They, uh, they were quite strict about getting you in and getting you out. Um, but also, you do Top of the Pops and that's when you start to see crowds of people hanging out outside waiting for an autograph. Or you think, oh, this is... This is this thing they told me about, you know, success, um, where you're not only 
selling records enough to get on on a TV show, but people are kind of crazy for contact with you on some level. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing. And I remember the marketing guy at Arista Records when it started to take off with that first hit single in the UK. He said, "Do you know? Enjoy this." next couple of weeks because it only happens once and that um in a way it changes your life because yeah. you can never go back to to normality you know and i didn't really know what he was talking about until i saw that the gates to the bbc were blocked by thousands of people wow <laughs> did you did you um did you tour a lot around that time did you did you take it out on tour that that particular yes, album. Yes, yeah. yes, because that was still what we did, you know. You know, some 80s bands didn't tour that often, but... I suppose that's true, yes. They didn't come from that tradition. It wasn't until much later that we experimented with the idea of not touring. Um, but the thing is, back in those days, you toured everywhere and lost money doing it, if necessary, in order to promote your record sales, which would pick up the loss and, 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 and do well for you. Now it's completely 180 degrees the other way, you know. Mm -hmm. um, no one buys records. And the only way you can make money is to tour. Preserving those income streams, otherwise you're not, you know, you just can't sustain. Do you remember any memorable t uh, tours or gig cities you played that you think in your mind? And you well, you know, I've played a lot of places and multiple times. And mm. so, yes, the, the, I mean, the weird things stick in your memory for weird reasons. Yeah. I remember playing Reading University with the old original band. I told you they were good. That was the only time in my life that I've had seven encores. Really? The band, the band were brilliant, and the audience just loved every minute seven. of it. Seven. You know, wow. So we, they called us back seven times, you know, which is outrageous. That's unheard of. Maybe we should maybe we should have stopped after three or four. Oh. So that's interesting. I mean, another weird one is I with with my Indian band, the Holy Water Band. I toured in India and um, we did the kind of tour which went from playing private audiences of very rich people one night to remote villages that had no electricity the next. <laughs> and that was just, for me, even as a kind of seasoned rock and roll performer, yeah. that was a mind-blowing experience to go. To, to, to see the different uh, uh, ways in which you can uh, pl uh, find an audience in a place like that. So things like that stand out. And obviously, you know, I, I, like, I like playing anywhere. But there's something in me that likes the small places best. Yeah. And I tell you why. It's because if you go to a small place, people are happy to see you. If you play in a big city, like even London and New York and LA, it's like there's a great gig every night of the year in those places. So, yeah, you're just another, you're an also-ran by definition. You know? um, but play in a, in a th second or third division town and uh, people are overjoyed that you've even bothered to turn up. You know? And so there's a different kind of excitement. Yeah. I like those things. Well, I... I can't wait to see you live again soon. And so what sort of plans do you have for, for, the, for the rest of the year? What's coming up for you? I know you said we mentioned the Rewind festivals, but... Yeah, I've got, I think I've got 13 festivals in the summertime, mostly in the UK and a bit in Europe. And then um, later in the year, Australia. Wow. 
which has been um, something we've been putting off because of COVID for so long. Yeah. Um, we're doing that. Well, I, I really, really do appreciate you taking some time out to speak to me today. And, it's it's my um, pleasure. It's, I'm glad we've, we finally caught up. Yeah, and, uh, and best of luck with future releases and tours, and I hope to get to see you when you, say, come back to the UK again. So thanks, Tom. You're really welcome. All the best. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. And you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.